Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Welcome to Concord Matters. This week, I am your host once again, Pastor Joshua Shear, Senior Pastor at Our Savior Lutheran Church here in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Coming to you actually uh, remotely from Wyoming today, but also having both guests in my office this afternoon to go through the Book of Concord. Uh, kind of a special show. We have one of our other regular hosts, uh, Pastor Sean Smith, is with us. He's traveling on vacation uh, for a wedding this weekend, and so he actually made a stop through Cheyenne, so he is here with us. He is pastor at St. Paul's Wine Hill and Emmanuel in West Point, Illinois. Pastor Smith, good to have you with us. Great pleasure to be here with you. All right, so he's going to have to try to be just a guest today, so that, that'll that be good. He'll actually get to speak more, uh, which is excellent. And then I'm also joined with Pastor Dan Hinton, who is uh, pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church and School here in Cheyenne, Wyoming, at least for a few more weeks, and then he will become pastor of Christ Lutheran Church in Lubbock, Texas. Uh, welcome, Pastor Hinton. Thank you. It's good to be here. You'll have to work on that Texas accent a little bit uh, as, you, as you begin to move further south. So... All right, we are in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. We've been chugging through it for well over a year now. And so uh, we are finally up to Article 15, and this will be on human traditions and so forth, uh, how traditions are used in the church, uh, which is a good topic, especially today as, as we see church bodies struggling all over with the idea of being traditional versus being quote-unquote contemporary. So... All right, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, again, uh, is written uh, in response to the Roman Catholics in their response to the Augsburg Confession. So you have uh, Philip Melanchthon and the confessors, uh, Lutheran confessors, on June 25th, 1530, making the Augsburg Confession, and the Roman Catholic theologians running off to their corner and coming up with their confutation, and then, of course, the Lutherans, uh, Philip Melanchthon especially, responded to that through the apology. So apology of defense, not necessarily an I'm sorry. Let's start us out. I'm going to read uh, paragraphs 1 through 3 of the 15th article of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession right now. In Article 15, the adversaries accept the first part in which we say the ecclesiastical rights to be kept that can be observed without sin and are beneficial in the church for peace and good order. They completely condemn the second part, in which we say that human traditions set up to reconcile God, to merit grace, and make satisfaction for sins are contrary to the gospel. In the confession itself, we spoke long enough about traditions such as the distinction of meats, yet certain things should be briefly reviewed here. We suppose that the adversaries would defend human traditions on other grounds, yet we did not think that this would happen, that they would condemn this article. We do not merit the forgiveness of sins or grace by celebrating human traditions. Since this article has been condemned, we have an easy and straightforward case. All right, so before we move into that straightforward case, you get a sense here that uh, Melanchthon's a little bit shocked that they condemn the second half of the Augsburg Confessions, Article 15, uh, but, but even more so that they are so open 
in their condemnation, that it's not just condemning it for various other reasons, but it's condemning it because they truly believe that rites and ceremonies merit the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Pastor Smith, you want to just give a little bit more kind of historical introduction on that? Yeah, so <clears throat> back in the Augsburg Confession itself, it, it actually titles this as church ceremonies, and that's what we're talking about with these ecclesiastical rites, you know, these these things that are done as part of the liturgy when we gather together as the church, um, and especially in the, in the Middle Ages, it wasn't always necessarily done on a Sunday. It kind of happened regularly throughout the week and still does in the Catholic Church today. And <clears throat> And so what we're talking about here is that the ceremonies, the liturgy of the church, and the things that we do um, are things that are very beneficial to the church. And as we've said many times in all of these articles, the Lutherans are doing nothing strange here. They're simply saying we are doing what the church has practiced ever since the beginning. In other articles, they specifically say we've retained all of these uh, ceremonies and traditions of the church and have only gotten rid of the things that direct us away from Christ. And that is the real part that becomes the, the distinguishing mark here of uh, these, these rites that you are saying you have to do, namely, um, the uh, it's tied in with fasting and Lent and, and other things, and we'll get to those as they're listed out here. Um, these are things that you must do in order to appease God, to make him happy with you, in a sense. And, uh, and the Roman Catholic Church is teaching that you must do these things, and uh, the Lutherans are saying, no, these things can be very beneficial. The traditions of the church can be beneficial in pointing us to Christ who has done them perfectly for us. The minute you make that move to say that you must do them in order to be a true Christian, in order to receive God's grace, well, now you've gone too far. You've gone farther than Scripture says, and they're going to build this case pretty well, even though, as they say here, yeah, they've they've dealt with this in just about every article so far of all of these things that pull us away from Christ. Well, it, it always comes back to justification and the gospel anyways. I mean, that's the chief difference between the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics, uh, even to this day, is just the distinctions that happen now between uh, having these things for the reasons we have them versus having these things, because you have to have them this way in order to truly be the church, to truly be, you know, saved and so forth. So, Pastor Hinton, just go through this a little bit. Okay, these, these rites can be observed without sin. Okay, that's good. Uh, but they're beneficial in the church for peace and good order. All right, so explain to me. You and I have churches that are, you know, three or four miles apart here in Cheyenne, and you go to our church, uh, our Savior, on, on Sunday morning, and then you go to your church on the next Sunday, and you'll see, you know, uh, LSB, Divine Service, setting three from the book. Um, so, so, yeah, what's what's the benefit here? The, the benefit is that we maintain a union and a continuity with the church of the past. And what that means is that the wisdom of the ages has been permitted to still speak to us. And we're not relying on reinventing everything generation after generation. One of the things Melanchthon has come to terms with is one of the, the kind of underappreciated aspects of the Reformation, and that is most people, when they think of the Reformation, and this is true of Lutherans and Catholics and even those who are looking from outside the church entirely, when they think of the Reformation, they think of the Lutherans breaking off from the Church of Rome. Well, first of all, we were excommunicated. That wasn't entirely voluntary. 
But second of all, if you take the, the doctrine of the apostles, the doctrine which is taught in the creeds, the doctrine which accords with Holy Scripture, and you draw a line through history, and this is, this is not my own experiment. This came from a dear professor of mine, Dr. Lawrence Rast at the Fort Wayne Seminary, who's now the president there. Um, as, as an interesting experiment in history, he, he had us draw a line from the apostles through the church, through the various teachers of the church, and uh, un until we get to where we ourselves are, are. And in the Reformation, it's tempting to think that the, the heritage before this time belongs to the Roman Catholic Church, and then we, we take it over. But the fact of the matter is, is that the truth belongs to the church because the truth is of God. And we, we did not break off in any sense. So f first of all, to the radical reformers, those who come in and, and they just want to get rid of anything that smells Catholic, candles. Candles were offensive. I mean, a lot of churches have candles now, but candles were extremely offensive to these radical reformers uh, back in the mid-16th century. They did away with them because they were too Catholic. Um, you, th you think chanting and incense is too Catholic. They thought that vestments were too Catholic. They thought that stained glass windows were too Catholic. Down with the statues. Down went um, even the church here. Anything that, that, that had the hint of Rome went away. To them, we say no. We keep those ecclesiastical rights that can be observed without sin. This is why the Lutheran Reformation was a conservative reformation. This is the, this is the thesis of Charles Porterfield Croth in his book, The Conservative Reformation and Its Theology. That those rights which can be retained that we inherited from the ancient church, we retain them. We are not radicals. We're not here to uproot everything. But also, we are we will get rid of those things which hinder the gospel. Anything that hinders the gospel, we get rid of. And if these ceremonies were set up in order to merit satisfaction for our sins, they go away. What Melanchthon is contending with is another movement that springs out of this that's, that's not thought of by, by us Lutherans that much, and that's the Counter-Reformation, where in response to the Lutheran confessions, in response to the Lutheran Reformation, Rome goes crazy. And there's really not a better way to put it, I think. And they dig in their heels. And those things which were kind of minor become now central features of the, the dogma of the Catholic Church. And that includes things like these traditions, which were at one point just kind of part of how they did things. Well, now they're, they're digging in their heels, and this surprises Melanchthon. Um, the low point of this, of course, is when in the, in the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent, uh, they, they say that anyone who teaches that one goes, uh, that one is saved uh, by faith alone apart from works, that teacher is going to hell. I mean, that's very much the low point of this counter-reformation. But this is what Melanchthon is contending with. He's surprised by their response. This doesn't make any sense to us. Well, what's going on is Rome itself is changing as it's contending with the Lutherans, and it's digging in its heels on some of these things and dogmatizing things that were not dogma heretofore. And so we, we Lutherans, as is typical for, for our history, we tread that middle ground between um, Rome and the radical reformers. And so on the one hand, we don't throw out all things that have the, the scent of Rome. On the other hand, we, we do throw out those things which are contrary to the gospel. And many of these rites and ceremonies, and chiefly the, the canon of the mass, are thrown out because they were set up to merit the satisfaction of sins, which is, is an, contrary to the gospel. Thank you. Yeah, this is uh, this is great stuff. It's it's meant to be for our our edification and our our, our knowledge on these things. Uh, let's let, let's read paragraphs four and five here, and we'll move on with this discussion a little bit. 
The adversaries are now openly Judaizing. They are openly hindering the gospel by the doctrines of demons. For scripture calls traditions doctrines of demons when it is taught that religious rites serve to merit the forgiveness of sins and grace. For they are then clouding over the gospel, Christ's benefit and the righteousness of faith. The gospel teaches that through faith we receive freely, for Christ's sake, the forgiveness of sins and are reconciled to God. The adversaries, on the other hand, appoint another mediator, these traditions. By these they want to gain forgiveness of sins. By these they want to reconcile God's anger. But Christ clearly says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. All right, Pastor Smith, I've heard this verse cited about us traditional Lutherans, that with our rites and our ceremonies and our hymnals and how our services barely change it all through the week, which is an absolute lie. If you're paying attention, they change quite a bit. Um, but but I've heard this verse cited against us. What's the difference between these traditions versus those traditions? Yeah, I I think one of the temptations becomes that we 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 see this and we say, well, if it's traditional, um, it, it can become so entrenched that we constantly have to reinvent the wheel in order to, uh, to, to stay free of this. And that's the temptation of some. And so they look at us with our traditions and they say, oh, see, you, you're teaching this as doctrines of men and you're just as bad as the, the Pharisees and the times of Jesus and things like that. And we say, no, that's not the case at all. And that's not what this article is talking about. It's not saying you're free to throw off tradition just simply because it gets confused. No, that's not the point. The point is, is that when you are teaching that by the doing of these traditions, you are meriting salvation, God's grace, that you uh, are, are making yourself acceptable to God, then you're nullifying the gospel itself. And you are saying Christ is of no benefit to you, that you have to do this yourself. And so that's the great danger. And so the thing that we want to do is retain tradition because of what it does. Um, but we have to teach what it does, namely that it points to Christ, how it points us to Christ, to see that he is our full uh, salvation with God, that he is alone made peace with God. And it's not in our doing of the things um, that that do it, but by receiving by faith what Christ has already done for you. This is one of the very important things that when it comes to especially the liturgy of the church, that we continually teach the liturgy, and that's always kind of tough to do. It, 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 it teaches in and of itself, namely that it points us to Christ. Um, but uh, I've made a practice of every once in a while, and just this past uh, Sunday as I was visiting for a wedding in Casper, uh, uh, Wyoming, the pastor, Pastor Christian Preuss there, was doing the same thing in Bible class, going through the liturgy of the church and showing exactly how this drips with Christ, the gospel for you, and that you can have really great comfort in that tradition. And so this is not... Uh, by any means just saying, no, throw off tradition because it becomes uh, confusing and, and uh, uh, you know, we kind of have to reinvent the wheel. Not at all. It's, again, we retain the tradition. Um, but uh, when you start teaching that you have to do this or else you're not saved, uh, well, then we have crossed a line that is very dangerous. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, I would say, you know, one of the benefits being peace and good order, as we talked about just a minute ago, um, you know, as you go from churches to churches, parishes to parishes, it's wonderful for our, our common LCMS member to go to a church and not be confused. 
but to find the same good order they saw at the previous church. And this goes even further, that when people have to move for careers and so forth, they can move to another church and find similar things at the, at the, at the next church. Um, a good question would be, you know, if you find yourself in, in, in your church, when people leave it, they end up having to join like non-denominational churches and things like that, uh, you're probably doing this article wrong. Uh, that, that you're really not following what the confessions say about how we should conduct ourselves as Lutherans in regards to tradition. Uh, not that we keep tradition for salvation's sake. No, we condemn that here. But we're keeping tradition for peace and good order. Uh, later we'll talk about how it, it teaches. It has a discipline to it and so forth. Pastor Smith. Yeah, I, I also wanted to jump back in, too, and, and, and make the point. You guys made the point that here within just a few miles of each other in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming, that you have uh, unity in the way that you worship and things. And I think one of the great benefits is is that if you were to come out uh, to my congregations, my dual parish that I serve in southern Illinois, you would know exactly how to worship. Uh, and, and receive the gospel. Uh, I, I've pointed to at times in my life, I've been in China and India, and though I didn't even know the language when visiting those places, I knew exactly what was going on and I knew God's grace for me because it was the liturgy of the church maintained. And, uh, and, and that really does promote to the unity that, that can be a, of great benefit, that peace that they're talking about and retaining these traditions. Um, you know, even the secular world recognizes this as, uh, formerly, um, when I was, uh, on Kenna's status as a pastor, I worked, uh, uh, in a, for a secular, uh, uh, coffee company that will remain nameless, uh, for its emotional charges that it has. Uh, but, uh, they, they have a team of folks that literally go around that do nothing but to make sure that all of their, uh, stores work in the same operation so that a customer can walk in and feel comfortable in whatever store they are in in the world um, and know how to order the drink that they want and and receive the the service that they need and if this is important for unity within the secular business world how much more should the church which has always known this continue to maintain such traditions it's just a beautiful thing that we we have, and then sometimes we get a little scared to maintain it, uh, just because we we misquote scripture passages that say, "Oh, well, you're just teaching the doctrines of men, and you're caught up in that." Yeah, exactly. Every once in a while, stores like Walmart will change their floor layout, and you walk in after they change their floor out layout, or you're you're at a different one of their layouts, and you walk in there and you're looking for stuff, and your trip to Walmart takes four times as long because you just have no idea where things are at. It's uh, it's disconcerting. Uh, something else in these paragraphs that I want you to discuss here, Pastor Hinton, openly Judaizing. Uh, what 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 is Melanchthon going after here? Can you explain that phrase of Judaizing? This is this is interesting. If you know anything about Philip Melanchthon, um, Luther described Melanchthon and and he in in kind of contrasting terms, where he described Melanchthon as very irenic, very peace seeking, very calm, um, very willing to to talk calmly and peacefully and engage, and Luther was a lot more uh, rowdy in the way that he put things. So when when Melanchthon writes that the adversaries are openly Judaizing. This isn't hyperbole. He's not, Melanchthon, because of his academic training, is not really given to a lot of hyperbole in the way that, that Luther sometimes was. So when Melanchthon writes something so startling, it, it, I mean, it really does stick out. 
The adversaries are now openly Judaizing, he says. I mean, that's that's a very bold statement in general, but particularly coming from a man like Philip Melanchthon. But what he means by this is, is this is one of the very, very first challenges doctrinally in the New Testament church is that of the Judaizers, where you, you have now uh, Gentiles being grafted into the flock of God, uh, and as that happens, many of the Jews who have been believers begin to insist on certain Jewish customs being necessary for salvation, um, and, and chief among these, of course, would be circumcision. And this is a, a large topic in Paul's epistle to the church in Galatia. And, and Paul does not pull any punches there at all when he talks about these things. And he, he uses words like another gospel to describe what the Judaizers are doing. By insisting on these customs and traditions for salvation, they are obscuring the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. They are adding burdens to the faithful who are uh, trusting in Christ for their salvation. In so doing, they're doing the, the work of the devil. And so Melanchthon is entirely right in writing such stark terms as the adversaries are now openly Judaizing because he's comparing the insistence of the Roman church on certain customs, especially to merit salvation, to that of, of the Judaizers who were roundly condemned. I mean, even St. Peter fell victim to this for a time, um, and, and Paul had to oppose him to his face when he came to Antioch. Um, so, so tempting is this, uh, is this error. But, but Melanchthon pulls no punches either when he, when he compares the Church of Rome to the Judaizers of the early uh, New Testament church. Yeah, it's uh it's it's kind of a, it is a striking phrase coming from Melanchthon. He 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 typically is very peaceful in his language, deliberate, uh, diplomatic even at times, but here he just kind of uh just opens it up. And uh this is kind of a Lutheran thing that Lutherans we we love to get along, we love to be peaceful, uh you know, it's it's a good thing. However, uh you start clouding over the gospel and and it's like uh, it's like poking poking a bear. Uh, it it won't it won't end well uh, because Lutherans, of course, are all about the gospel. And when we see that being clouded over, as he says here, uh, that uh, then that, that will make an, a Lutheran defensive in a hurry. And so that's what we're seeing here from this. Uh, again, you also then have him him talking about these doctrines of demons. Uh, that's referencing First Timothy. Uh, four, where St. Paul talks about these things. One of those doctrines of demons is the forbidding to marry, uh, that we would know as, uh, you know, uh, clerical celibacy that is still prevalent in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, that it's, uh, forbidding something that is God has ordained that is, that is wonderful and, and one of the best earthly gifts that we have, that is marriage. Uh, so good, of course, that the devil wastes no time or effort in attacking marriage, as we see all around us in the world today as well. And last you have there in this, before we move into paragraph six and then go into the break here, we have this last idea that, you know, another mediator, you know, that Christ is our mediator. Uh, he is the one uh, who, who stands in between, stands for us, uh, mediates for us. But of course, they, they have another mediator, these traditions. And, and this, of course, goes back to that same Roman Catholic distinction that they're having, that they have to have the Mass, the sacrifice of the Mass, that you have to be present, that you have to do this, this, and this, and you have to follow these things in order to really, really be forgiven. And then, of course, the way that always runs is, uh, well, you never quite really know if you're really forgiven. And that's the, that's the great danger of all of this, where you pin stuff on works, where you pin stuff on a person's doing, 
how will they ever know if they've done enough? And that is the great evil there. Uh, Pastor Smith, you have any other comments on that? you got about a minute. Yeah, I, I think it once again brings us right back to Article 4 on justification, which we spent over a year on, where <clears throat> for the uh, Roman Catholic Church and still in their doctrine today, it really comes down to what is Christ for? And for them, they to boil it down, uh, essentially says Christ makes it possible for you to be loved by God. Um, you, you have to commit something of, of works on your own. And so that's exactly the error that they have in these church ceremonies and these ecclesiastical rites as they are saying, Christ has made it possible, now you have to take the next step yourself. And I think we even still see this permeating, especially American evangelicalism today, and we've talked about this many times on the shows, but it's an error and understanding that Christ is the full satisfaction, and uh, we should look to him for our hope and gospel. Exactly. And so as we come back from the break in just a minute, uh, we're going to be uh, covering some of the Bible verses that Philip Melanchthon brings into this discussion. Uh, just kind of as a brief summary again for Article 4, as we'll go through that yet one more time. Uh, Lutherans are always about the gospel, so get ready to hear it again. You need to. It's always uh, something we need to hear. So, you've been listening to Concord Matters. We're coming to you remotely from Cheyenne, Wyoming today, covering the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 15. We will be right back after a short break, and we'll talk about Paragraph 6 and following after that. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 122, verse 1. Each weekday, the servants of God at the LCMS International Center gather together to receive the gifts of God in His Word. I invite you to join us weekdays, 10 a.m., for a live broadcast of daily chapel services on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. In a day when numerous concerns about money and safety abound in this fallen world, there is still a beacon of hope in Christ Jesus spreading the gospel message of mercy. Worldwide, KFUO has been a good steward of donations, ensuring the safety of funds our listener-supported ministry receives. If you have questions about donating to keep this worldwide ministry healthy, send an email to gifts at kfuo.org. Using all caps in today's written communication can mean everything from highly important to urgent. Or if you're texting, it's akin to shouting. 
However, in the Greco-Roman world, the use of all caps, known as unseal script, served a practical purpose. It was simple to write and easy to read. This also made it easier to copy words accurately. But did you know, several significant Bibles were written entirely with unseal script. One of the most well-known is the Codex Sinaiticus, a 4th century manuscript containing the oldest complete copy of the New Testament. Unseal manuscripts were used particularly in Bibles until around the 9th century, and over 300 New Testament unseal manuscripts still survive. Engage with the Bible in its impact and influence over the centuries. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Concord Matters here on KFUAM Radio, the messenger of the good news. And I am this week's host, Pastor Joshua Shear, coming to you from Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, my guests today are fellow co-hosts, uh, Pastor Sean Smith, as well as Pastor Dan Hinton. We left off in Apology 15. We just finished Paragraph 5, and we're going to move on to Paragraph 6, and we'll read a larger segment here, 6 through 12, actually, as it's divided up here in the Concordia Reader's Edition from Concordia Publishing House. So here we are, Article 15, Paragraph 6 and following. We have already discussed at length that people are justified through faith when they believe that they are reconciled, uh, have a reconciled God, not because of our works, but freely for Christ's sake. It is certain that this is the doctrine of the gospel because Paul clearly teaches, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Now these men say that people merit the forgiveness of sins by these human celebrations. What else is this than to appoint another justifier, a mediator other than Christ? Paul says to the Galatians, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. This means if you hold that by obeying the law you merit righteousness before God, Christ will benefit you nothing. Why do they need Christ who hold that they are righteous by their obeying the law? God has presented Christ with the promise that because of this mediator, and not because of our righteousness, he wishes to be gracious to us. But these men hold that God is reconciled and gracious because of the traditions, not because of Christ. Therefore they take the honor of the mediator away from Christ. So far as this matter is concerned, there is not any difference between our traditions and Moses' ceremonies. Paul condemns Moses' ceremonies, just as he condemns traditions, because they were regarded as works that merit righteousness before God. So the office of Christ and the righteousness of faith were clouded over. With the law and traditions removed, he argues that the forgiveness of sins has been promised not because of our works, but freely because of Christ, if only we receive it through faith. For the promise is not received except through faith. Since we receive the forgiveness of sins through faith, since we have a merciful God for Christ's sake by faith, it is an error and sin to declare that we merit the forgiveness of sins because of these observances. If anyone should say that we do not merit the forgiveness of sins, but that those who have already been justified by these traditions merit grace, Paul again replies, Christ is then a servant of sin. The same would be true if we were to hold that, after justification, we were not counted righteous for Christ's sake, 
but we should first by other observances merit that we are counted righteous. Likewise, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. We should not add to God's covenant, for God promises that he will be merciful to us for Christ's sake. Nor should we add that we must first get such merit in order to be regarded as accepted and righteous through these observances. So far, the apology. All right, so we've discussed this at length, but we're going to discuss it at length again, according to Melanchthon. So uh, he is uh, ever long-winded at times, which is good. This is a good thing. We need to rehash this over and over again. This is a good thing. All right, so before we get into this, however, I want to ask the question, so does this mean that a person cannot go to church? I mean, okay, so we don't have to observe these servants, these ceremonies to, to, to be saved. So why do I have to go to church, Pastor Smith? Well, <clears throat> yeah, this, this question comes up all the time, right? Uh, you know, I, I know that Christ saves me, and so why do I have to go to church? Well, Christ himself says, if you abide in me, you are truly my disciples. He, he you know, I, I often put it this way, actually, you know, for, for our folks today, you know, they, they kind of work with images pretty well. And so I say, you know, if I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm in church and I'm handing out a million dollars, who of you are not going to move heaven and earth to get there to get your million dollars, right? Uh, you want to receive that gift, but I'm the same guy. I'm in church, but I'm handing out everlasting life, not because of what I'm doing in and of itself and not because of how great I am, but because of what Christ has promised to give there in his word and sacrament. You are receiving eternal life. We should come to church because that's how we abide in him. We receive him through his word, through the sacrament. It is where he has promised to be. We know that God is present everywhere, but what we need to know is where we can know where to find him, where to find that comfort that strengthens us in our faith and trust that we have the promise of everlasting life uh, for us because of what Christ has done. And so this is the very place where we receive uh, what what Christ promises to us. And so we should move heaven and earth, you know, in a, in a sense, to get there, to be in these places that we may continue to abide in him by his grace. And so it, it becomes then not a work, a legalistic work, which I think is the temptation for American evangelicalism, is that they kind of do the same thing as the Jews again. And, you know, while it's not the specific sacrifices or things like that, um, you know, well, you, you have to be in church because otherwise you're not a true Christian. No, I, I think that's the wrong mindset. I think you should have to be in church because you recognize that Christ has promised to be present there, giving you everlasting life and strengthening your faith. And uh, that's a gospel motivation, not a law motivation. And so uh, we, we, um, we want to be where Christ promises to be for us. Yeah, and, and in even the law motivation isn't necessarily bad, because God, of course, does have the third commandment in place. Uh, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, and Luther, of course, beautifully attaches that then to the preaching of God's word. And this article will emphasize that uh, probably in a segment that we won't get to this week, but uh, the, that the preaching is important, because, of course, there are things that are commanded for Christians, and that is the hearing of God's word. Uh, the receiving of Christ's body and blood in the sacrament of the altar, being baptized. Uh, these are public church things that Christians are indeed to take part in. Yes, because it's commanded, but even more so because of what you say, the promise that, well, what is God going to use these things to do for you? These are the things he's going to create faith with. He's going to sustain faith with. He's, he's, he's going to... Uh, <laughs> 
exercise your faith through these things, feed them, nourish them, whatever phrase you want to use for it. Uh, but, but the person who says, I don't have to be a part of that, is showing, of course, disbelief in, in God's own word, whether it's the word of law, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, or uh, the word of, of, of gospel, that you know, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them, or do this in remembrance of me, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. All these, these words that Jesus has attached, which we see in church, and for the one who stays away from such things, uh, even if they start that with faith in Christ, uh, I can say that as a pastor, this is what I teach my people, is that uh, I can always say that faith is dying in those people. I, I can never say, cannot ever say definitively that faith is dead, but faith is dying. And, of course, a person who stays away from the vine or the, the means of grace long enough will find themselves without faith. And, and I think you make a, a helpful point there. Of course, the law does exist, and we don't nullify or negate the law, and, and we use it, um, you know, to, 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 especially for us as Christians, we have that third function of the law that serves as our guide. It guides us in the right way to live. Um, and, and so we certainly have that. But I think that I always say the Christian life is one lived out in tension. And so the tension is, is that you can fall off to either side of this, right? And, and you can fall off to the, oh, well, I don't have to go to church because I know that Christ took care of everything for me and things like that. But then you can definitely fall off too far to that law side. And, you know, oh, by my coming to church, you know, just by sitting in the pew, oh, clearly I'm saved. You know, clearly, clearly I've, I've done what I need to do in order. Well, now you've made it a law. You are as bad as the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, the Judaizers, the Pharisees, scribes at the time of Jesus and, and, and before where you have made it into a law that by your doing of something that you have uh, obviously uh, achieved this peace of God, whereas the the tension of it all is is that I'm driven um, by the law and the gospel to be in church, to receive God's gifts, the forgiveness that he delivers to us, life and salvation, um, but then uh, also that you know I don't take confidence in my being there, but in the fact that Christ has promised to be there for me. Yeah, yeah. The confidence should always be in in God's word given to you there at church, um, rather than you being there in church. Because of course, one can be sitting in the pew every week and still be breaking the third commandment. Because of course, Luther, as as a small catechism says, you know, gladly hearing preaching, gladly uh, learning it, uh, not despising these things, holding them sacred instead. Um, so yeah, it, it's not just even being there, but it's also the way in which we receive these things. And of course, the old Adam inside of us will always be happy to twist and pervert whatever's going on uh, to turn it into some kind of works-righteous filth uh, that just goes on out there. Pastor Hinton, is there anything you want to add to this? Man is by nature um, a, a ritualistic being. We, are, we were created in the image and likeness of God. And yeah, that image and likeness were lost in the fall. But but we were we were meant to be ritualistic or at least, you know, ritual-loving beings. And things that are important to us, we attend with rite and ceremony. Even baseball games have a rite and ceremony. Really, all you need for a baseball game is a field and, and umpires and a ball and players and bats and so forth. But anyone who's been to a baseball game, particularly a professional baseball game, knows there are certain ceremonies that are there because... Those are important events to those who are there. Well, how much more the preaching of God's word? Yeah, we, we meet together for the preaching, and there will necessarily be ceremonies attending to those things. There have been since the very beginning. 
the distinction we need to make is that those ceremonies are good, but they are never to be done so, so in such a way that the mere performance of the act is salvific in itself. Um, and and this is this is a problem I think with with many of our uh, friends in America that uh, they 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 see the abuse of ceremony and therefore they think they can get away with just getting rid of it. In reality, they just end up inventing new ceremonies. I mean, even even in the uh, even in the rock concert worship services, there are still ceremonies and and rites. They're just new. We retain the old, and there's a reason for this because. There, there is wisdom of the centuries that's come to us. St. Paul was very eager to hand over the things which he had learned. Um, if, if you study uh, through the Bible what handing over means, we hand things over from one generation to the next, and we've received much from those who have come before us. So let's, let's, never, let's never read these things in such a way that we think that ceremony is bad, but... When it's taught that se- that these ceremonies are salvific or necessary for salvation, they must be done away with, even if they're pretty, even if the, they they sound beautiful, even if the music is nice and high and angelic. If these things obscure the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are to go, and if they don't, and if they teach, they should stay. This was the nature of the Reformation from the very beginning, and it, and it's still the nature of the Reformation. Those of us who belong to the, the churches of the Augsburg Confession, we still uh, see ceremony in that light, that they are good, but they're never, never, never to obscure the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a common thing that'll come up when you hear stuff like that, Pastor Hinton, is, is somebody will say something to the effect of, but, but isn't the gospel obscured because I get bored with the same thing every week? And there I would, I would, I would argue that you know where God's word is, the new man in Christ, in, in Christ Jesus is never bored. That that boredom is only of the old Adam at that point. And the person who's complaining about being bored at church where there's God's word uh, is actually living by their old Adam rather than their new man. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, the church has always taught that boredom is a sin. I, I like to tell my my uh, my uh, teenagers and and uh, and pre-teenagers in the church this because that's a common complaint that they get. They're very active and they get bored easily if they're not entertained and they're used to being entertained. And they say, I'm bored. And I say, you know, boredom's a sin, right? What? Yeah, it means you're not satisfied with what God has given you. The ninth and 10th commandments tell you to be satisfied with what the Lord has given to you. But um, our boredom is sin. If, if we're bored with, with ceremony and right, we may need to consider the, the state of our heart. It might be time for us to reflect. Is the problem really with the ceremony or is it with me? And it may not be even intentional. It may be that I don't know what this ceremony is. I know Pastor Smith mentioned that he's teaching through the liturgy, or that that Pastor Preuss up in Casper was was teaching through the liturgy. Um, I'm about four-fifths the way through teaching through the common service in my own congregation here in Cheyenne for that very reason, because one of the, speaking as a pastor, one of the reasons that sometimes people will despise rite and ceremony is sometimes they just don't know what's going on there. And so this is why we Lutherans are, are so keen to teach all the time. And, and Lutheran pastors, if, if they're any kind of pastors, they're always keen to teach something. They're always teaching, teaching, teaching. And, and the nature of, of ceremony is such that sometimes you get a better appreciation if, if you are taught what's going on, uh, even as you're doing it. And so, uh, so I, I think many times this is a this is a good opportunity then for us to to think and reflect. 
Why are we doing these things? I want to pick up on that, too. That I think it's interesting, the parallel that Melanchthon draws here between Moses' ceremonies and traditions and, and the issue that it became for the Judaizers and so forth at the time of Jesus. And yet, that is not cast off. One of the things that really clued me in on this is uh, a book by Arthur Just, uh, Professor uh, Arthur Just, uh, that uh, is called Heaven on Earth. And he draws the line of the development of the liturgy and so forth. And so much of it that we have actually goes back to the temple worship and synagogue worship of the Old Testament Jews. And so even the early Christians, in light of Christ, who, who condemned what the, the Jewish teachers were misteaching, misinforming, that they were finding hope and comfort in the wrong things, instead of being prepared to receive the Messiah as their full salvation, um, they don't do away with those things. They actually retain them and build upon them, and, and it forms the basis of our liturgy that we still have today. And so again, the, the idea should never be to cast off these things just because they are tradition and they have been abused. And I think you hit that very well, Pastor Hinton, um, that uh, we don't just cast them off because they've been abused. No, the, the right move is to, to teach and to re, re, restore them again to their rightful place because they just drip with the gospel and, and um, all the comfort that it has for us. Yeah, these are these are good things. Um, benefit, of course, of of being taught that your human heart is bored with things of God uh, and being rebuked in your sin. That's a useful thing, and that's that itself is a reason to keep this order and these ceremonies, because we should be rebuked when we start getting bored with the things of God, um, or when we start trading in the things of God for what we think will work better with men. Uh, that's just idolatry of yourself and your own thoughts and your own thinking about is you know what's going to best serve our our customers and that's of course a total business mindset which is nowhere allowed in Christ's church and if you see that happening in a church um, yeah flee um, that's that's just wrong uh, the church is not a business um, the chief business of the church is the forgiveness of sins and that is a self totally outworldly. Um, the world doesn't come up with anything like that. Yeah, it's great you bring back in the idea of Moses' ceremonies here. Um, he condemns Moses' ceremonies not because of the ceremonies, not because of traditions, but because they were regarded as works that merit righteousness before God. So the con condemnations that Jesus brings, that St. Paul brings towards these things, these traditions, these ceremonies, is not the ceremonies and the traditions. The condemnation is on the human beings' trust in them rather than the trust in Christ, uh, the trust in, in what Christ has done. And of course, then that's exactly what's happening here with the Roman Catholics. It's exactly what you happen now, have see happen nowadays in churches, um, not only the Roman Catholic Church, but you even hinted at the, the evangelical church. These kind of things happen. Uh, the trust in the worship experience, uh, I felt this. Uh, all these things can be, can be evil, very evil, because they're directing your trust away from Jesus away from Christ, who alone is the mediator. Um, just to reiterate here again, again, the, the promise is not received except through faith. Um, you know, sometimes we, we struggle with the word faith ever since the pietistic movement of the 1800s moved through things. We sometimes don't like to talk about faith as much. But, but here our confessions don't shy away from talking about faith. 
Now, it's faith in Christ. It's not faith in faith or anything like that, but it's always faith in Christ that it's talking about here. But, but faith is important, and of course, it is the thing which receives the promise. All right, so, so St. Paul does a great job here of using Galatians and using Ephesians to again reiterate the gospel uh, of forgiveness of sins by grace received through faith, and of course, to change that around to saying traditions merit or earn grace is then to make uh, Christ uh, of no effect. What's the why? Why? Why bother? I think one of you was saying, you know, in the Roman Catholic system, Christ becomes the the one who kind of facilitates you to be saved. And at the end of paragraph twelve, this is kind of how it's going. You know, those who would um, we don't want to add to God's covenant, nor should we add that we must first get such merit in order to be regarded as accepted. So, so we also condemn there is you know the kind of limited grace, the prevenient grace that. That some denominations might have that. Oh well, yeah. I mean, it's up to it's up to Jesus because He has to give you the first bit, and then after that you take the ball and run. Uh, that is also condemned by Lutherans as well, and our Lutheran confessions as well as Saint Paul, Jesus before Him, the prophets before Him, all the way back to the beginning. This is just erring. This is not proper. All right, let's read uh, thirteen through seventeen, and we'll get a little bit of discussion of that before the show ends today. Why do we need a long discussion? No tradition was set up by the Holy Fathers for the purpose of meriting the forgiveness of sins or righteousness. Rather, they were instituted for the sake of good order in the church and for the sake of peace. When anyone wants to set up certain works to merit the forgiveness of sins or righteousness, how will we know that these works please God, since there is no testimony of God's word? How, without God's command and word, will he make people certain of God's will? Doesn't God forbid people everywhere in the prophets from setting up peculiar rites of worship without his commandment? In Ezekiel it is written, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor keep their rules, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If people are allowed to set up religious rites and through these rites merit grace, the religious rites of all the pagans will have to be approved. The rites instituted by Jeroboam and by others apart from the law will have to be approved. What difference does it make? If we have been allowed to institute religious rites that help merit grace or righteousness, why were the pagans and the Israelites not allowed the same? The religious rites of the pagans and Israelites were rejected for the very reason that they believed they merited forgiveness of sins and righteousness by these rites. Yet they did not know the righteousness of faith. Finally, where are we made certain that rites instituted by men justify without God's command, since nothing can be affirmed of God's will without his word? What if God does not approve these services? How, therefore, do these adversaries affirm that they, are, that they justify? Without God's word and testimony, this cannot be affirmed. Paul says whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Since these services have no testimony of God's word, Conscience must doubt if they please God. All right, so here you have some historical things, discussion of the pagans and Jewish ceremonies, uh, but you go back to sola scriptura, that uh, the principle that everything for the Lutherans has to come from Scripture, and here's why. How do you know something's God-pleasing if you don't find it in God's Word? How do you know this is what God wants if you don't have the Word? Now, Pastor Hinton, of course, the Roman Catholics would just say, well, holy tradition. Uh, but Lutherans don't deal with tradition that way. Uh, we, we have traditions which are good, but they always, I mean, we, our teachings have to be sounded in God's Word. 
Yeah, um, as as Melanchthon's writing this, first of all, I I, I kind of feel like I'm, I've got to like cheer him on a little bit and add a couple of amens to him as he's writing this because Melanchthon is digging to the to the heart of all of this, which is that finally Rome rejects sola scriptura that that principle that we Lutherans cherish so dearly that the sole source and norm of our faith is the holy scriptures and. It's it's kind of like you know when you're a kid and you're playing tag, and there's that that one kid that likes to invent rules to to try to like you know justify himself. Oh well, uh, if if you tag me while I'm crossing my fingers, then it's not it doesn't really count. That kid always drove me nuts. But that's the Roman Catholic Church, you know. Let's just let's just continue setting up traditions and let's just make stuff up as we go, and without God's word to check these things. What what limit is there on them? There isn't one, and that's that's the problem. And so, we we Lutherans maintain the sola scriptura, that is that um, the the source and norm of our faith is is the Scripture alone. And how Melanchthon asks this magnificent question: How, without God's command and word, will will we ever will he make people certain of God's will? Um, how do we know that these works please God if there's no, if there's no command of God? You know, you, you say these works please God in themselves. How do you know apart from God's word? And, and of course, the answer to that rhetorical question is you don't. And uncertainty is the enemy of faith. Yeah, in fact, that's that's the thing that we're getting back to the heart of here. We just, you know, we talked about the gospel being the main thing. We talked about faith, which receives that gospel, and now we're seeing the damage that is done to faith. Thus, then, also done to the gospel uh, through this. Pastor Smith, we have about a minute if you'd want to comment some. Yeah, I think this section especially says why we retain the tradition, because it does indeed come forth from God's word. We we have all of these things because, as our Lutheran service book especially points out for us, especially in the liturgies that we use, how all of this is derived exactly from God's word and point us to exactly where we find our hope and comfort, namely that it is God's forgiveness. I think a good summary for this and, and for our show today, too, is is uh, from a, a theologian I love to quote on the show a lot when I host, uh, CFW Walther, um, is that uh, he says, anything that's Lutheran that isn't Christian uh, should not be kept, and I don't want to be a Lutheran. So in other words, everything that is Lutheran in the traditions of it is Christian. It is drawn right from God's word and directs us directly to Christ. And that's why we're Lutheran. And that's why we retain the tradition. Excellent. All right. So next week we'll pick up right here uh, in these paragraphs, probably just pick up some more of this stuff since we kind of ran out of time. Uh, but you've been listening to Concord Matters here on KFUO AM radio, the messenger of the good news uh, for this week, uh, Pastor Joshua Shear wishing you uh, Lord's blessings. Go to church, hear God's word, receive the sacrament of the altar. If you're not a Lutheran, go become one. Uh, it's uh, the pure gospel. You need it. It's good for you. And we'll be back to you next week to read off more of the Augsburg Confession. <laughs>